Listener Production. I never felt sorry for myself. There were times I felt, why am I in this situation? But I never felt sorry for myself. And I can remember at the time also thinking, instead of looking for all the good things, I'd look for all the problems so I could solve them because the problems used to become bigger and bigger if I didn't. Problems, when you make them and they're earnest and you find solutions, it actually makes you grow. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Colette Dinnigan is one of Australia's most famous designers. Her fairy tale creations shone on the catwalks of Paris and they've been worn by the world's biggest stars, including Kylie Minogue, Nicole Kidman, Halle Berry, Pink and Angelina Jolie. But after 24 years running her international label, Colette decided to close her business and change direction because she wanted to spend more time with her growing family. Now, I couldn't wait to catch up with Colette. She has a very special place in my heart as I've worn her exquisite designs for the milestone moments in my life. And you can own your very own piece of Colette with her specially designed eyewear as she celebrates her 10-year anniversary with Specsavers. I wanted to talk to Colette about her sea change, if she has any regrets, and how she still uses her exacting eye to create beauty around her. It's so lovely to see you. All the memories come flashing back for me because you're a very special woman in my life. You designed the most important dress of my life, my wedding gown. It made me feel so special. I didn't want to take it off at the end of the night. Mm. <laughs> but so many people commented to me actually how beautiful you looked. It's, and it's, you know, it's not just about the dress really, is it? It's about how you feel and you're glowing. So it's, I think that's a nice thing about what I've done in the past is made people feel happy. Sometimes it's bad memories, but <laughs> most of the time it's good memories. Oh, it is. Mm. And I think that is such a gift that you have, your ability to make people feel at their best in those moments where they're shining already. What do you think the secret to that is? Well, I think, you know, and it's not necessarily in any good design, but you want to feel comfortable and confident. And that's my job is to make, you know, the people who wear my clothes feel confident. So it's got to be a good cut. It's got to be good quality, attention to detail. There's nothing worse than something irritating or scratchy or that doesn't fit well. So, as a designer, you know, it's my job to make sure a woman feels very comfortable and confident. And, and then I think the rest is about my detail and the cut and the fit and what's fashion and what sort of modernizes a fairy tale dress when it comes to wedding dresses. Where did that eye for detail come from? Because you've always had that with design, that very almost exacting way of looking at things that perhaps other people don't see. Oh my goodness, it's about, there's so much editing in my brain. Every time I walk into a room, it's kind of an edit, you know. But my mother was very talented and she would do a lot of batik painting. And my father, he built our yacht and he made all the things out of stainless steel, all the cleats. And so it was in my blood, really. It's a part of you. It's an extension of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, I know it is. And I, I think, you know, my life 
when I was brought up as from, you know, a child from very early age living so nomadically, I guess I also had such a sense of adventure and I was given a confidence as a child, even though, the, you know, my parents were quite strict because they had to be at sea, I guess. So having that attention to detail, being brought up with quite adventurous, very creative parents, I think I had the confidence to kind of go out on my own and not... You know, I don't know. As you get older, I feel like I, I'm much more critical of myself. Really? Yeah. As you get older? Yeah, I do in design because I'm not more introverted. I guess I don't think I ever was, but I've been very shy and I kind of keep to myself a lot more. So you live in this little world and then once you go outside the bubble, it's quite scary and you just want to run back in again. See, I find that fascinating that as you've got older, you feel even more like retreating. For me, I feel the opposite, that I feel more confident and a bit more fearless as I get older. Yeah, well, maybe I contradict myself because I am fearless and I'll do anything, I guess, not anything, but a lot of things. I guess I'm confident in what I know and probably, and I don't mind putting myself, like I can remember doing MasterChef. I was like, maybe I might when I got asked so many times to do it. And everyone's like, don't do it. And I was like, you know what? I need to put myself outside that comfort zone to do something that was very unusual and very unlike me just to keep yourself in check. Just something so different for your persona and it's not kind of Groundhog Day. And and even though design isn't Groundhog Day because there's always a reinvention, there's always something new, there's something different, there's a new shade of blue, there's a new shade of pink, there's a new shade of red and mix it together in a different way. But there is something that, you know, I think it's good to kind of put yourself on check. Of course it is. Yeah. And it's a way of feeling alive. So you did Celebrity MasterChef. You got to the grand final. You're extraordinary. Well, I, I think I mean, my mother was a great cook too. My father was particular and I can remember growing up in New Zealand and so she'd plant the salad between the roses and we'd have mint growing at the tap and a bunch of rhubarb somewhere else. And, you know, it was so kiwi, I guess. Um, we had every one of those vegetables that weren't like kind of heirloom vegetables, I guess, that weren't popular at the time. The way my mother cooked was by flavour, not by measure, I guess. So... And I guess that's a whole life was like that was flavor and color and music and drama and adventure. Nothing was ever measured. And would you say as well, it's the way you show love cooking for people? Absolutely. And I, it's my way to relax, actually. Even in Paris, I'd cook for the team. It would be my way to go to the markets for half an hour. I'd love to see the produce and the colors, get it together. And we'd do the debrief of the day and I'd be cooking in the kitchen, making everyone either a roast chicken or a pasta of sorts or, you know, salads and things because I can remember the first few trips, everyone would just eat these baguettes, which were great. <laughs> the baguettes are good. <laughs> they're not when you're working so hard. You need a lot more nutrition and, you know, um, vegetables and things. But it used to be my debrief with the team and it was great fun. And that's, you know, we had a nice glass of wine and it was, I think, and I still do that with friends. You know, it doesn't matter who. It's, we're always in the kitchen, we're laughing and it's always part of our family and we're a food family, oh, definitely. Let's talk about Paris because, of course, you were the first Australian designer to be accepted into, if you could say it in your beautiful way. It Chambre was syndicale. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's extraordinary. You were showing in Paris twice a year. What was that like? Because as an outsider, I've, and I love fashion, I always think, oh, that just sounds so glamorous and extraordinary. Was it or was it quite different? 
Oh, I, look, I think it was extraordinary for an Australian, regardless, or any Australians, even who followed in my footsteps to go, because there's an enormous amount of preparation and work that is unaccounted for, and particularly when most other designers or they had their ateliers down the road. So if you were needing to alter something, you had the right colour thread. You know, if we didn't happen, we forgot to bring the perfect colour pink for that dress that needed buttons sewn on. We had to go out shopping for it or finding it somewhere. And we had to orchestrate, you know, a team based on the ground that wasn't always from Australia with seamstresses and everything. So there was a lot of organisation in it. And I think, you know, the, the one thing that also a lot of people don't realise is that I was the only female to own my own business 100% and show in Paris. Most of the other designers were particularly, I don't know any other female, maybe even I don't know, male, they all had groups backing them. So they had that kind of support and network. But at the same time, you know, perhaps maybe when you know something, you wouldn't do it. And the sense of adventure came because the stores like Barney's and Harvey Nichols asked me to do it because they were so confused as to how to wear my clothes because there was a corset here, print skirt there, a lace overlay here, another little bra peeking there, and it was a look. And um, they said, you know, it'd be so much easier if you did a show or did some photographs for us so we could teach the team. And that's how it started, really. It wasn't my dream to show in Paris. It was more that I was asked to. And then we got accredited by the Champs Syndicale because I started showing against other designers and the press started coming to our shows. So they started complaining, the ones I showed against, of which I thought the press were would be very disinterested in my show, going to, you know, perhaps maybe an Azimiyaki show, Comme des Garçons, because we're so different, but it didn't turn out that way. You know, it's the new kid on the block, I guess. Yes, you may have started as the new kid on the block, but your business, it was 24 years, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That is something in the world of fashion. Well, no, I, and also, you know, it was hard work. And I think I would have kept on going had I not had my son, Hunter, because he was a whole different kettle of fish to Estella. She loved going to Paris and would wear her tutus on the plane 10 at a time if she had to, if she could. <laughs> you know, and then we'd come up with all those kind of netting creases in her legs and be as sweaty as a little, I don't know, she just loved it. Um, but whereas Hunter was so not want to travel on the plane. He'd see me across the room and wanted to be breastfed immediately and he'd be screaming the house down and I couldn't sleep and it was a whole nother bag really. And so I decided, you know, I, I just thought, what am I doing here? I can't just keep on working 20 hour days and I want to bring my children up. I don't want nannies to discipline them and instill the kind of values and things that are important from where I believe they should come from. So I made that decision to stop and it was really difficult. But at the same time, it was my decision. It wasn't enforced on me by someone else. So you kind of take the good with the bad, really. And my family's sort of priority. So I think I did the right thing. And as you say, it's empowering for you to make that decision. Mm. There's no one else sort of saying, you need to take a step back. At the time too, I you know, was pretty emotional with the team and making it, but I had so many women write to me or, come, or even men actually who came out of the woodwork saying, you've inspired me to do the same and their careers actually flourished because they weren't floundering. They were making good positive decisions and they were taking control of their work life and their family life. And I think, you know, People ask me, how do you balance everything? And I'm like, there is no such thing as balance. It's extreme, makes a medium, you know, one high and one, one low. And then you we're told that's what the middle is. And for me, I'm not a middle person. I'm all or nothing. So I guess that's where 
I find that my balance was that I decided to put it all into my family for a period of time. And then as you can extract yourself, I mean, there's a different set of problems every year and you only realise that after you've had the next year. <laughs> you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yes. You think it's all about the beginning and then you think, oh, no, it's about the middle. Oh, my goodness, it's about those teenagers. <laughs> and then... It never ends. You never there yet, are you? No. You're never done. No, no, no. But some moments your kids make you very proud, I think, and you step back and gives you a big smile inside. So what are some of those moments for you? I guess, well, they're not the ones at home where I get told, oh, mum, you're so embarrassing. Oh, don't do that. Oh, why are we having this again? Oh, I don't like that food. Or, you know, it's those, because I feel like I'm the disciplinarian nagger, but I'm also somebody who gives enormous amount of freedom. But it's, I guess it's the moments make you proud that you hear from other people, not from your children, because they say, what a pleasure, what a delight, how well-mannered. You're like, hmm, good to note. That's so rewarding as a parent mm. because they're the sorts of things that you value. And so it's lovely to think, oh, they do listen. They don't just roll their eyes at me. And also it's voluntary from someone else. It's something that people don't necessarily want to volunteer. Or they don't take the time to compliment. As we know, there's a lot of people who take a lot of time complaining and being negative where there's very often, not often people take the time to be complimentary. So I always take my hat off to those people that do. Yes, that's so true. Mm. Also, I think as well for our listeners, they will feel great relief to know that Colette Dinnigan, an extraordinary designer, cool, beautiful chef, all of these sorts of things that even your children roll their eyes and say, <laughs> you are so embarrassing. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Well, I think... As I said before, family is a priority, but at the same time, now I do have to extract myself a little bit to kind of refocus and get my own kind of fitness together and, and be that strong person that can take care of all the problems that come along. So it's still important to pull yourself out when it's appropriate to take care of yourself. Sometimes though, I think as a parent and especially as a mum, it can be hard to do that because I know with me, I'm not happy unless my kids are happy. Mm -hmm. If they're miserable, I'm going to be miserable. I think that's any mother, isn't it? I don't think that changes no matter how old, what generation. And I feel my mother was the same because I can remember, I mean, she died when I was very young, but I can remember her saying, just you wait and see. When you have children, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> As if. <laughs> yeah, and now I know exactly what you're talking about and I wish you were around to have met my children. But it's kind of, you know, a lot of, I guess parents say when they become grandparents, they love the grandchildren, but they love to hand them back because they've been there before, they've done that. It is something you can't let go of because it's the most precious thing in my, all my life anyway, as my children and creating humans is, you know, it's a huge responsibility. And then being the advocate to be their guides in a way with good manners and kindness and, you know, teaching them all the values that are so important. And that's really hard work because it's not up to the schools to do it. The schools are up to educate, you know, not to, that's my belief anyway, not to be teaching the manners and the values. And of course, our kids are sponges. So it's really, I agree with you, very much our role to blaze the trail mm. for them and to show them this is actually what matters and this is how you talk to people mm. and respect people and, and what counts. I want to talk more about, so it was 10 years ago now that you left your business, decided to go in a different direction. And as you say, that inspired other people. And I think about myself, actually, in this regard. I was doing full-time TV, which I left five years ago because I wanted to be more present for my family. And I don't regret that for a moment. I know it was the right thing to do. 
Do you have any regret or think, oh, did I leave too soon? Or was it just, no, I know this was the right thing? Oh, look, you can be greedy and then that's when you start to regret. And no, I, I, I don't because it was my instinct and I've run my business and a lot of what I do on my instinct. And I think I've always seen the picture much further out. I know exactly what to do. And as I come closer and closer to the day or the thing or whatever, I feel nervous and I become much more of a liberal. Like, shall I, shall I not? Am I in, am I out? <laughs> you know, <laughs> whereas I can see the future quite clearly if I'm sort of at a distance. And it was what I felt was the right thing to do. And of course, you know, there was a lot of, especially with the team that was so loyal to me and a huge part of my business, I felt very responsible. But at the end, we managed to place them all in other good companies. And, and in fact, you know, it was kind of like the grass is greener. And then it was suddenly like there was no one like you. They enjoyed Paris suddenly. It wasn't like what days do we get off after. It was like the trips to Paris, you know, working with beautiful fabrics working with amazing people and learning different craftsmanship and techniques and being pushed in in a creative level, you know, way, not not in a hardship way. And and just the trips to India or China or Hong Kong or, you know, Paris, New York. It was the good old days, you know? And I feel like I'm so it was my time to go because I'm not an IT sort of spreadsheet, PDF kind of a person. I'm very much somebody who drapes on a mannequin. I touch the fabric, I sew by hand, I cut by hand, I see it, I edit in my head and I need printed matter in front of me. So it's a very different generation. I mean, we used to have photographers who would hold on to pictures for they were embargoed for three months before the magazine came out. And now it's who can get it fastest. You it's know? on social media yeah. straight away. It's a different world and it's one I appreciate, but it's not the one that I felt very comfortable with so I can look back and, you know, it's not as tactile as it was for me back then. So I think it was my time and and I'm doing so many other things. You know, I can't help myself. I've done ceramics and the candles and um, tablecloths and interiors and books and like... Children's clothes. I think I bought all of the Aldi range (laughs) because you designed a wonderful range that was sold in Aldi. had my daughters wearing them. And I also remember I tried to get the biggest size possible to see if I could fit into some (laughs) of the tops as well. (laughs) My friend Tori was just telling me she did the same. She's so tiny. And she bought shorts and the tops in the biggest sizes and still has them and wears them. (laughs) What I think is so special about what you do, Colette. Whatever you kind of seem to turn your eye to is that it's all so beautiful and they're keepsakes. It's not sort of, oh, I'll just have that and then I'll get sick of it. What you craft, you want to keep forever. I've kept all of your designs and what I love is that my daughters, I've sort of altered them and my youngest daughter's wearing Mm. your pieces. Again, where does that come from, that Because if you could bottle it, you'd be a a billionaire. I don't know. I mean, I think I'm probably so frustrated with myself because, you know, it's my husband, when we go to a hotel or a restaurant, just don't look. Just don't look. (laughs) Don't rearrange anything. (laughs) Don't do anything. So you're forever beautifying things. Yes, it is. It's my, in fact, I'm doing a new book at the moment and we've just been through Italy um, and we were just, everything was like, this is so beautiful. Look at that green paint peeling off here. Look at that column. We mixed it with that. And how about we painted, the, oh, it won't work in Australia. Oh, no, it's the light here. You know, it, was con- it is. It's about beauty. And beauty isn't about just all things pretty. It's about there's beauty and ugliness. There's beauty and things that motivate you or spark something in you. And it could be a different, it's an energy really. And I, 
And it's an emotion that is not necessarily just about prettiness. It's not the same. There's lots of different things. But I don't know. I, I think it's a huge edit in my head. And I'm driven by color and texture and balance and proportion. And so it's not one thing, really. It's, a, it's quite frustrating at times, explaining it. And I imagine to to get to that end point, does it take a long time or do you sometimes find that, oh, you've got it like that? Oh, just when you think you've got it, you realise you've lost it. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's gone somewhere else and it's morphed into something else or suddenly you have another idea which is better than the first and you need to start again and then you don't have enough time. And it's frustrating being a designer, really, because usually at the end of my collection, I feel like I've just got there and I need to start again because I've really just arrived with that great idea. But it's too late. You've got to start the next season. The spark that you talk about, has that changed over time, that spark that you feel when you are creating, or is it the same? No, it's the same. It's just an, I just do it in different things and places. And, and you know, it's it sometimes... I feel like, you know, when you're bored, you're tired. Sometimes I get so creative or so inspired by so many things, suddenly my tiredness totally goes away and I'm alive again and I can work for 12 hours when I'm creating and then I'm taken away to, you know, a boardroom with some accountant with working out a tax return and what was this for? And honestly, within three minutes, I'm almost asleep. And it's not because, <laughs> yes. it's because I'm not interested, I'm not... Well, not as interested and I'm not as focused. It doesn't take me away somewhere. The place that it takes you to, is that the same place or do you go to different places? It's the same place as far as energy is concerned, but a lot of what inspires me is in different places. It could be, you know, Moroccan sunsets and it's all kind of pinks and and nudes and those beautiful sunset colours with camels in the sunset. You can paint lampshades and see long shadows on the ground and, you know, everything's sort of blowing in the wind and kind of very romantic. So that's a very different place to if you're going to kind of urban New York. It's a different jungle, you know, but it still is very similar energy when you're on a roll that you just keep on kind of editing, adding and making it look effortless actually and just right. And that's sort of the art of it is to kind of make it look effortless and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to make it look effortless. And even you just talking about like I feel like I'm in Morocco now. I love that, that sort of visual picture you've painted. Yeah, so a lot of it starts with colour and place and temperature and it's like a journey but a journey and then I can remember the one time I did go to Morocco in my head and it's all those beautiful hues of pinks and things and then suddenly there were the camels and there's also lots of not caftans but scarves in the wind and then there was suddenly the moon and the stars and I thought oh there could be Kylie on a moonbeam oh yes <laughs> let's put some sparkle <laughs> on the pinks and let's have dresses that have Moroccan sunsets dip dyed with lots of sparkle sequins and moons and stars and you know someone swinging from the moon oh. was, you know there's just so you have to have a vivid imagination actually huge imagination and then kind of the reality is is that you have to realize it through craft and you have to translate so it's a different language and what a gift for language you have, that amazing design language. You mentioned Kylie there. So Kylie Minogue, Nicole Kidman, Miranda Kerr, Sarah Murdoch, Tony Collette, Naomi Watts, very famous women who you've dressed over time, haven't you? Yeah, no, I, it's, and it's been a pleasure to dress them because they are very, not just 
um, extraordinarily beautiful, but they've got huge personalities and their careers have been stellar as well. And and also most of those, you've all of them you've just mentioned, they're all Australians. I mean, what incredible women we've had that have kind of gone to the world and been noticed on such a global scale pre, you know, the whole kind of celebrity onslaught really and all the blogger, influencer things that came to, you know, the forefront. And before the phone, actually before the iPhone, before yes, the camera on the phone. Exactly. Oh my goodness. The, you know, we had lots of fun doing dress ups and trying on clothes and seeing what looked good. And and also probably pre-stylists, you know, would be me and the artist or making a dress rather than a stylist and an advertising agency and somebody else having an opinion on what they should look like. So it was very much, you know, true creative kind of meetings making someone look even more beautiful than they are, if you could help it, and making great dresses or outfits that kind of made them shine was, it was fun. It was, and it was, it was like playing great dress-ups. Was there any particular story that you can share that stands out for you with any of those particular women? Well, there's a lot of stories, but one that's quite funny, and she wasn't Australian actually, and Roger, I can remember her manager contacting us and saying, look, do you know, I represent this artist and she really would like you to do some clothes for her tour because she normally always gets worse dressed and she wore one of your dresses to a premiere or a concert or something in New York or LA, wherever it was, and she got best dressed on the best dress list on a few magazines and she wants to see if you can, and that was pink. Oh, so wow. So she came down and we played dress-ups again and made little shorts for her and did different outfits and she used it for her Australian tour and Japanese tour. But it was great because it was, you know, she was actually celebrating feeling good with a designer and we worked very closely together and what she wanted. And there's been, I mean, there's so many stories, actually. There was that one of Halle Berry. She was asking to wear one of my dresses for her Die Another Day premiere, I think. And the stylist, Philip Block, contacted me and I just moved house. I said, I can't, I just can't get it to DHL. He said, please. And I said, look, they'll never wear it anyway. Half the time, you know, it's a 5% chance maybe. He said, come on, darling, just send it, please, please. I said, okay. So I went to DHL on a Saturday, sent the dress. And um, he said, I'm so sorry, she's decided not to wear it. <gasps> I said, oh, I know, Philip, it's okay. Don't worry, it's fine, you know. It's, and he said, thank you so much. And then I can remember being contacted by CNN, all these different radio stations, TV stations, everyone globally, and saying, so what was under that dress? What, what was, was that see-through? And I'm like, I'm so sorry she never wore my dress. And they said, well, they're saying it's your dress. I'm like, no, 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 no. She was going to, but she never did. And it was on the front page of all the newspapers, and it was my dress. She had decided to change two minutes before she went out. She put it on, but the lining was the exact same color as her skin. So everyone wasn't sure whether the, she had no underwear on or... So that was the story. Like, what is Halle Berry? Has she got anything under that dress? <laughs> <laughs> I remember those images because she looked shimmery. Like, it was almost but like she looked so like a... so Halle Berry. Yes. So she normally wears those very long, elegant, floaty dresses of Ellie Saab or, you know, but yeah, she looked like a sparkling mermaid. She did, who just emerged mm. from the water. So there's stories like that. I'm sure everybody has lots of them. And it's, sometimes it's down to chance. Sometimes it's, you know, we have them ourselves, you know. You're walking along and a heel breaks. It's like, oh, my God, I'll get some chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's that feeling like? Because there's not a lot of designers who can share those sorts of stories and have had that number of people wearing 
their incredible creations. Yeah, I know. Look, I feel very proud that I was chosen at the time. And I look back now, I guess, and I hear all the stories. And it's still, you know, even when we were living in Italy a few years ago, it was interesting because most people thought I was still showing in Paris. Because I guess as a not a I guess a customer, a consumer, I don't know if somebody wears your clothes, it's not the fashion press. So the fashion press knew I wasn't, but oh, I wore your dress, my daughter. And so it was kind of, I had a lot of great stories. And it made, that made me feel that the brand still lives on because I got told I had two years, you know, and then I'd be on death row basically as a designer if I wanted to do anything else that you're never remembered. And I thought, you know, that's probably right though because you're only as good as your last album. You're only as good as your last film, aren't you? And unless you reinvent. So, or you come out with something better, I don't know. I felt incredibly proud and I still do because... There's a lot of things that I work so hard towards. And, you know, a lot of people work very hard and get no recognition. And I was acknowledged, but that, again, was a time that wasn't sort of, I guess, um, patrolled by, you know, heavy-duty stylists and PR companies. And it was much more a time when... It was organic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was organic. And also a lot of younger females didn't want to feel stitched up in Oscar de la Renta or Dolce & Cambana that it's everywhere else. They wanted something fresh and modern and, and new not something that was everywhere. I think as well, because I love fashion, as you know, and clothes have such a powerful Mm. language as well and an ability to take us to places Mm. that we don't necessarily think they'll take us to. And when I say that, I mean in our mindset. They can be very powerful, can't they? Especially for women. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think, but they've got to make you feel good though, because if they're not cut properly and they're irritating and something's wrong with them, they don't take you anywhere. They just, you want to take them off. (laughs) And not in a good way. So so you need to have a good cut. It's very emotive and I think, but it's got to fit you well. It's got to make you feel good and give you confidence. And I think that's my job as a designer. It's not necessarily just the way it looks, it's the way it feels, the way it makes you feel, it's how it's cut, the quality and the attention to detail. So there's a lot that goes into one dress. When you talk about clothes making you feel a particular way and feeling happy, where are you happiest? Well, I'm happiest between doing the vegetable garden and looking after all my flowers and pruning and doing everything, being with the dogs and the animals and my chickens and the horses, cooking for the family and having friends for dinner. And I guess with that, I've made all the ceramics and <laughs> printed the tablecloths and got wildflowers and roses everywhere. And um, But it's always, I like to be in a beautiful place, whether it's a rustic setting on a, you know, a park bench, you can make it look beautiful, whatever. It's There's always a moment and I like to take people somewhere, I think, in the experience. So I think whether it's fashion or food or the garden or fabrics, it's what I love. As we were saying at the very beginning, that was something that you learnt from your parents, wasn't it? You were on a yacht, weren't you? You travelled yeah. the world on a boat. Yeah, on a yacht. 50-foot yacht, so not that long. And how long, I mean, how long were you on that for? I think I lived on the yacht until about the eight, from seven to 12, so for five years. So quite some time. And we sort of, we sailed like the Cook's Bass Strait, the Tasman Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. We went through some very bad storms, you know, but we also, when you're a child, I think with your parents, and if you trust your parents, which you usually do, you look up to them, you kind of, you think that's normal. 
So I think a lot of things that for us at the time were normal were abnormal to a lot of people. And I can remember arriving in New Zealand, having a terrible storm, and everybody came down to the boat and went, we'll take the kids off the boat. So, you know, the storm's so bad. And we're like, Dad, can we just go out to sea? Can we ride the storm? Because we felt safer on the yacht, riding the waves, and we did having a tree crash on a house. So it's kind of how you're brought up and what you're used to and your environment and, and, you know, what you're taught and what you learn, I guess. And also, I wonder, your sense of imagination mm. and creativity, that must have come alive in that environment too. Yeah, it does, because I think, you know, you are in a very different environment and you're not, well, we didn't have children, to, we didn't go to preschool or we weren't able to mix, I guess, with other children. So. It was really my brother and myself, and then there were a lot of whales and sharks and dolphins and fish and albatross. And so you kind of do imagine what the land's like going to be ahead. And Dad would say, sometimes here it comes. We'll be in two weeks, you'll see the first sighting of land. Or, you know, so we'd dream what it's going to be like, that country. What's Australia going to be like? You know, what are the people going to be like? What kind of mum would you describe yourself as? Other people have described me as a mother with a huge heart and very giving and letting my children, giving them a lot of space and freedom and, you know, giving them, I like to give them a very broad kind of spectrum. I'm not somebody who puts them into one thing and wants them to be something I never did or never was. But at the same time, I guess I'm, I'm very protective from the world that I know sometimes what's out there and what I hear and see. And I don't want them to grow up so quickly. I want them to have their own experiences, so they're not always through media. So I think um, I don't like the connection to be so quick with digital and iPads, and that frustrates me. So I find that, you know, there's a lot of contention in our house when I pull away the digital world. So that kind of mother they don't love. But on the other hand, I find myself arguing, well, that's the way of the world. Well, maybe they need to do that. But it's that screen time. It's something that frustrates me and makes me not a good person because I want to take it away. I want it to be an experiential world where you're actually cooking and baking. So I try and do as much of those things, gardening, and make it fun as I can, particularly with Hunter, who is still in that spectrum of listening to me a little. (laughs) So how old is Hunter now? He's 10. Oh, my goodness. He's 10. Yeah, he's 10. (gasps) Estella's 19, so definitely an adult. She said to me the other day, I said, oh, it's so good you're coming home. She said, well, I come home to see the dogs. I said, oh, what about me? She said, well, I talk to you every single day. And I said, oh, okay, you still love me. (laughs) (laughs) Of course she does. Because she was there, obviously, from the very start in the sense of being your firstborn. Mm. And I remember interviewing you quite some years ago, and I think Estella was maybe only two at the time, but you were talking about when she was first a newborn, that you actually missed her being inside of you. That that took an adjustment. And and I think almost being a parent, it's a series of letting goes. We have to let go from giving birth and then it just, it never stops. Oh, it's amazing you remember that because yes, now you've reminded me. I can remember because it was a selfish thing. She was part of me and then when she's born or when any child's born, it's our job to be the caretaker. We can't take, we're caretaking and we have to guide and teach them as many values and, you know, compassion and kindness, like I talked about before, and guide them and let them kind of make their own mistakes, but give them direction. And when they are in situations, they hopefully we've given them enough guidance, they can make the right decision for themselves. So yeah, it, it is a selfish thing to want them back in, but it's a feeling. Did you have that though at all? That- it was more, I think, 
because I had postnatal depression. Mm. And so early on, I was struggling. So it was more, I couldn't reconcile being so down when I had everything on the outside that I'd ever wanted. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to be a mum and I struggled to breastfeed. I found myself in not a good space Mm -hmm. at all. So it was hard. But interestingly, with Giselle, my second baby, I had the postnatal depression a second time, but it wasn't as bad. And I did miss that connection with them. Mm. I would call it like little butterflies. Mm. Like when she was still growing inside of me, it was like little flutters of butterfly. It was different for both of them. And I think now I actually, I enjoy them more now that they're older. I struggled when they were Mm. small because I found it very boring. (laughs) Apart from, you know, once I got better, but I found the routine and the monotony of the physicality of that hard. Secretly, can I say, pushing a swing. I'm so glad I don't have to do that again. (laughs) No, exactly. It's like oh. playgrounds. How nice is it? But I was like, a single mother for oh. the first three years, so I did it all on my own. It was like, you know, any downtime from work that I had, I would make sure I was doing everything, you know, playing fairies, doing all of that. You know, you mentioned that you were a single mum for those first three years, and not only that, you're running an international business. I know. Well, I when, when I put her to bed, you know, I'd be tickling her back, seven o'clock asleep, then I'd be on the phone to Paris. And then New York would be midnight. And it was just like, oh, my goodness. But when you have to do that, you just have to do what you have to do. You don't actually, when you're motivated, I guess, or when you have problems, I never felt sorry for myself. There were times I felt, why am I in this situation? But I never felt sorry for myself because, you know, I just made myself accountable and just try to get on with the job. And and I can remember at the time also thinking instead of looking for all the good things, I'd look for all the problems so I could solve them because the problems used to become bigger and bigger if I didn't. And that's all I wanted. And I'd go into work and say, just tell me the problems of the day and let's try and find solutions, everyone, rather than, oh, what was great? And because you, that filters through. The greatness always filters through. If people have done something right, the goodness, you know, but the problems often get put under the carpet and then they become a cancer in the business. And it becomes a lot harder to resolve. And just trying to teach my team that sometimes a problem or making a mistake isn't the worst thing you can do because we can find a solution and change the way we construct or, you know, even how we navigate. But there's a, our, you know, our society has such a, it's such a problem that we don't allow people to talk about it. You think you're the bad person, you're about to lose your job, everything's negative. But it's like, you know, problems when you make them and they're earnest and you find solutions, it actually makes you grow as a company, as a person, as a team. And I don't know, it was a very difficult thing. And that's, I spent my life teaching everyone to just find solutions together as a team or on their own or whatever. I think that is such a fascinating way of approaching things because that is unique. I haven't heard anyone say, I want to begin the day by saying, well, what are the problems? How can we sort them out? Well, in our business, I guess there were so many different departments. That's the one thing I think, you know, at the time with fashion in any country, but particularly in Australia, kind of was seen as a nice business. And what it did was it employed so many people in retail, so many people in dispatch and freight and packaging. And there's multi-levels to the business. And there's also, it's unlike a law firm, you might go in and everyone's got a master's in law or MBA or, you know, double degree in this, or they've had experience and work experience, teaching, law, practicing, whatever. 
is that in our business, we have people who didn't even finish high school, who some had an accountancy degree, some had a design degree, others were machinists from Greek descent who couldn't speak English properly. So the business had so many different personalities and different skill sets. And so communication was key. And I found most of my time was keeping the running of the business to get the best possible outcome because we needed every single person in the team because one thing, if the machinist wasn't there, we I'd be sewing, <laughs> you know, the pattern maker and everybody had different skill sets, different backgrounds. And that's what was fantastic about it. I mean, it was a predominantly a female business, but there were a lot of men in our business too. And, you know, there was a lot to navigate with personalities and different communication was key. What is ahead for you? When you think about what's happened in the past 10 years, what is next for Colette? Well, at the moment, as you know, I'm celebrating the last 10 years with Specsavers, which has been, honestly, right from the beginning, was a great collaboration for me to have. It's changed a lot. I think I've changed a lot of the ways they see things too, literally see things. I was probably the person that caused the most problems. I was the most, you know, let's do this, let's do that. I'm always the one who pushes the envelope and tries to find um, not just a solution, but a new direction and make it exciting. And so we've had amazing times and the, you know, now it's with open arms that they're kind of making sustainable design happen and packaging is all recycled and much more, you know, everything is much more environmental. And of course, I've been a staunch believer in good work ethics, but the environment and, you know, no plastics and things. So it's great to see that things are changing there in a core business and a big business too, because it's a super brand. You know, I think we don't really realize it is and how lucky I am to work with brands. And I have done in the past too, that it's good design doesn't have to be expensive. And that's my mantra. Like when I did Aldi, it's about proving that good design can be economical, but it's just much more mass produced because of the cost of production. Thank you for the beauty that you've given all of us and the beauty that you continue to put out into the world. I mean, you're a trailblazer. You really are. You see things differently and you help all of us, I think, look at the world in a slightly more beautiful way. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, actually, because I don't often get out from the vegetable garden. (laughs) (laughs) It's been wonderful to see you. It's lovely to see you too. Thank you. Pleasure. Oh, I loved catching up with Colette again. She is such a phenomenal woman. And I love talking with her about design and how she has that brain that's always editing and that sense of spark that she has when she starts to create and she knows she's on the right track. And you know what? I was wearing one of my fave dresses of hers when I interviewed her and gee, it was nice to put it back on again. And my daughter, my youngest daughter, as I left home, she went, Mum, I love that dress. So that was a bit of a win for me if my teenage daughter thought I was rocking an outfit. Now, if you want to be rocking a Colette outfit, why not get some of her incredible sunnies and eyewear? And now this is available now at Specsavers. It's the gorgeous Colette Dinnigan Limited Edition Collection. And it's available in store now. It's been inspired by the Italian Riviera. And I can't wait to be getting my own pair of specs because I tell you what, 
They're just beautiful and they've got some little lovely sparkles on the sides. So for more big conversations like this, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll never, ever miss an episode. And if you know someone who loves fashion, I reckon you need to send this episode to them. As well, I think if you love this episode with Colette, I think you'll love my chat with Camilla Franks. You know, that was the first step and that was terrifying, but it was actually one of the most empowering things. It stripped me back to my most raw and authentic. And I had my best friend there, my hubby, my best friend from India, all around me doing this ceremony. And then they turned and I looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, not so bad. And it just felt really empowering to just have me without the makeup, without the big hair, without the crystals, and just me. And I was like, okay, we need to do this now. We've got no hair. We're on this path. It was the finite moment. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.